Welcome to another episode of Employability Matters, a careers-related podcast where we dive into all topics associated with the world of work. We feature special guests sharing their personal career journey, as well as provide you job search tips and relatable advice with your host, Sophia Lewis. Joining us today, we have Sharnette Donacian. Sharnette is a Cambridge University graduate an ACCA qualified accountant and a JIEB qualified insolvency practitioner with numerous years of international experience working in the big four companies. Charnette transitioned to coaching because as she states in her own words, helping people is my passion and I wanted the freedom to help people by developing programs and products which can be easily accessed. So let's get started. I'm going to introduce you to Sharnette Donacy and to big you up for a minute here, because the process is that every time I ask a wonderful guest to come on, I send them a brief and I said, oh, you know, can you send me a career summary? So I'm going to big you up. I'm going to highlight the key words. Okay. Right. So the first thing is Cambridge University graduate. Hello, somebody. Yeah. The first one on the podcast as well, so I feel really proud and privileged, <laughs> seriously, ACCA qualified, and I know that qualification is no joke. I had a friend who'd done the SEMA qualifications, yeah. the Chartered Institute of Management Accounting, she'd done that qualification, so I know that ACCA is no joke qualifications. JIEB qualified, add that you have got international numerous international experience working in M&A and strategy and transformations departments of the big four companies yeah Yeah. and you have several years management experience working across multifunctional multidisciplinary teams and now you have transitioned to coaching because helping people is your passion and you also wanted the freedom to help people by developing programs and products which can be easily accessed. So welcome, Charnette. For the wonderful introduction. No, I'm like, talk to us through your um, career summary. Yeah, well, um, after I finished um, university, I graduated. I actually studied history at university. So I don't know, immediately thinking you might think, okay, there's not a real direct line into going into finance but um, I attended a careers fair and I really kind of liked the idea of what they were selling, you know, business restructuring, which is essentially coming in into a company and helping them to turn around or to, you know, improve their performance or, and or to sell or to really help them rescue a company. So that sounded super cool to me. And also I thought, okay, this would be a good opportunity to also gain a professional qualification because to be honest, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I left it quite late. Um, I was sort of just coasting along through uni, having fun with my friends, that kind of stuff. And then eventually was like, oh dear, you need to get a job. Um, So I kind of fell into restructuring and I started at BDO um, where I stayed for, I think four years. So within those four years, I worked predominantly on insolvency cases. So if I can think back to some cases that I might have worked on, um, Lambert Howarth Group, um, what was that? Dawny Day Property Group. And there was another, there were loads of like restructuring um, companies and things that I worked on. But um, yeah, and that's when I became a qualified accountant. So I did my accountancy qualification, which took four years. And then there came that point, you know, after you finish your qualification, you kind of think, okay, what's next? And at that time at BDO, they were going through quite a lot of changes. And 
the changes and sort of the introduction of new people, there wasn't really a good fit anymore. You know, I was knocking heads with a few senior people, um, which I won't even go into now. <laughs> but um, I thought this is a good time for me to leave and move on. And also it was at the time when, um, you know, uh, the, the economy had just taken its biggest turn, I think, for a very long time. This is 2008, 2009. Um, so I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to move, you know, um, really leverage upon this situation um, from, a, from a learning perspective. So I moved to Deloitte. I joined Deloitte in 2009, um, where I started working on, yeah, pretty much similar things, um, insolvency, restructuring, turnaround. Um, and then at, during that time, I also qualified as an insolvency practitioner. So from that moment on, I kind of thought, okay, I have a clear path. I know exactly what I want to do, work hard, you know, get my experience, network, develop good, strong relationships with my clients, you know, really kind of cement myself within my team. I was involved in loads of things outside of just my work within my team, sort of, you know, networking, also internal. It, it was really, really fun and exciting at the time. And I thought, okay, I know what plan I want. You know, next shot is to make it assistant director, then director, and an ultimate goal would be partner. <laughs> okay, fast forward 2013. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, I got pregnant. Um, it was not in my plan. So that was a little bit of like a, a derailment for me. Um, I wouldn't say that I never wanted kids. I guess it was always in my mind that at some point I would have kids, but not really at that time. So this kind of threw me, you know? But I tried to ignore it, basically, and just kind of went about my, my daily life, going to work. I didn't attend any classes. I didn't really fully prepare for it. And then on top of that, my husband um, got the, well, my husband now got the opportunity to go to Amsterdam um, on a secondment. So we try to structure it so that um, when I go on maternity leave, which I would have taken a full year, then we would move to Amsterdam for one year on a secondment and come back. Um, very naive. <laughs> And I think I will stop there for now and then we can go on. <laughs> Very naive. I love that because one of the questions that I'm going to ask you is to share your backstory <laughs> because we have um, in terms of, I know that you said you're from St. Lucia. So from St. Lucia to the UK to Netherlands, like, wow, you know, yeah. <laughs> share your backstory. Cause I know when you said you're a bit naive, you said, oh, I need to stop there because I know you've got more to share, isn't it? So yeah. share your story moving from, Beautiful. Oh, St. Lucia. And I know I've shared this with you. Yeah. Because um, my cousin's husband is St. Lucian, St. Lucian parentage. Yeah. And I love the island. Okay. So St. Lucia, beautiful island. And I will be back soon type of thing. Over to you again. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not called Helen of the West for nothing. Yeah. St. Lucia. So it is really a beautiful island. I was born and raised in St. Lucia um, in a small fishing village in the south of the island called Shrizel. And I grew up around my family. And I mean, literally surrounded by my family. We all lived on the same street, so we were pretty much neighbors. So my memories are very, very fond, you know, climbing trees, stealing plums and, you know, uh, bananas from people's trees, you know, going exploring on the beach, going down the river on weekend with like my cousins um, with a bucket, you know, to catch crayfish and you bring it back to your aunt and then she makes a bouillon for everyone, you know, those kind of things. It was really about connection together, family and all that kind of togetherness. Fast forward to being nine, 10 years old. Um, we moved to the UK with my mom, my sister and my stepdad. So everything that I knew was just completely shaken. I remember actually standing on the steps of the BA plane 
with my mom and my sister, we were the last ones to go on the plane because this was like a huge deal. I think about 40 people came to see us off at the airport. And, you know, St. Luke, we're um, in Viewfort, you have a very small airport. So the plane is literally there, there's a gate, and then there's literally like 40 people of our friends and family coming to say goodbye to us. And, you know, we're all like crying our eyes out. It was such a traumatic experience, actually, when I think about it. I think I cried for weeks and weeks and weeks. I was so angry with my mum for this, because I was thinking, I've got like a blessed life here. What is this? But obviously, in hindsight, I'm looking back, my mum had to do what she thought was right for us, you know, in trying to bring us out of a situation and open us up to more opportunities. So we left St. Lucia to the UK and I moved and I was living in Crystal Palace. Um, my stepdad had an apartment there. So we lived there for about nine months. Um, we hadn't actually had a school, so I didn't go to school for around nine months. <laughs> and then my stepdad got a job um, and then we moved to Kenilworth. So not only have I moved from St. Lucia to London, I'm then moving to the middle of England, which is completely different again to St. Lucia and also London. So there I am, London, the buses, the tall buildings, the sounds, the stress. And then I moved to Kenilworth, this small, literally idyllic little village in the middle of Warwickshire. The house that we lived on was backed onto a farm, for example. You know, no one locked their doors. You can go and ask for milk. You know, you can go and get milk from the farm. It was that kind of um, atmosphere. And I actually had, I have such warm and wonderful memories living there. But fast forward one year and you guessed it, we moved back to London. <laughs> you moved back to London? Yeah, yeah. So I've moved again. <laughs> Um, back to London. Um, actually, originally I was staying with my aunt in London whilst my mum and my stepdad then um, kind of sorted things out. So I moved to London so I can actually join my sister at school. So she had moved down to London as well. So there was lots and lots of change, lots of instability, lots of insecurity um, from that perspective. And then, yeah, things didn't really work out with my aunt. So then I moved again to go and stay with my dad's best friend for a little bit. And then when my mum and stepdad came down, then we all lived together and we stayed in the house that we moved in for until I moved out, basically. Um, so yeah, so I'll fill in the gaps a little bit quicker now because there's too many, too many things to say, to be honest. Um, yeah, and then I just grew up in London, you know, made lots of friends. Um, then I went to university, studied history. And from university, yeah, then I started work at BDO, then you have Deloitte, and then <clears throat> the fateful pregnancy. <laughs> and then we decided to move to Amsterdam. So I, like I said, we were extremely naive. I really thought that I could move to Amsterdam, never visited Amsterdam before, never been to the Netherlands before, literally have no idea about the culture, the people, anything. I just thought, we're only going for a year. How difficult can it be to just you know, just give birth, pop the baby out, you know, look after the baby for a year and then come back? No, it didn't quite go that way. <laughs> so that's interesting that you um, picked up about um, your mother and your stepdad made the decision. Well, your mother, sorry, your mother made the yeah. decision to move from St. Lucia to, to, to the UK. And I've got a similar type of story because... Um, me and my mum, I was born in Hackney until, and I lived there until I was 16. Yeah. And my mum had an opportunity to move out of the borough. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved Hackney. All my friends were there, even though I went out, I went to school out of the borough in Tower Hamlets. Um, yeah. But I loved Hackney. It was, you know, all my formative years yeah. have been there type of thing. And when my mum made a decision to move, I was like, okay, I thought, yeah, we're going to be, you know, moving to another place in Hackney. But yeah. what it was, the estate that we was living on was getting knocked down. 
So oh. my mom had two choices to move in a new build in the new estate in Hackney and Haggiston or to move mm-hmm. out of the borough. Yeah. Guess what my mum chose? Move out <laughs> of the borough. <laughs> I'm telling you, I went kicking and screaming. Yeah. I was so upset. I understand now, you know, many years later, the reason as to why my mum made that decision for me, because she felt she wanted to, number one, own her own home, which she does, and also give me a bit of opportunity, because I was living in a flat, you know, in an estate, and my mum said, no, she has an opportunity to buy a house, and for Mm -hmm. us to have a garden, and all of that wonderful stuff, but I tell you, I look back, and I still say, thank you, mum, even though I went kicking and screaming, I say thank you, (laughs) you know, I really do. Because at the end of the day, parents are making a decision based on what they want and what they feel is best for their children, isn't it? And what life they want to give to their family type of thing. So my mum done her best and kudos to her, you know? Exactly. And I think, yeah, only with the growth and with age and kind of with hindsight, you can really appreciate like what what that decision also meant for your parents because they're also changing and transitioning. They're going through the same thing that you're doing, but they kind of have to do it with a brave face. Um, So yeah, I totally appreciate what my mum did, yeah. So you're now living in Netherlands, Amsterdam. Oh, wow, I've been there a couple of times. Um, My dad back in the days and my stepmom, they were part of this um, Bayesian Overseas Association Committee. So every so often we would go to, you know, different parts. We'd go to Netherlands, we'd go to France and everything. I remember, you know, walking through... I'm laughing about it now, walking through the red light district, but just, you know, not even looking left or right because I thought, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be here. (laughs) And just walking just through, just focused type of thing. But yeah, we was there for a long weekend and it was so much fun. So in terms of the Netherlands, I mean like, oh my gosh, what is, how has it been for you so far? Like, I know you've moved from St. Lucia to... Kenilworth then to London (laughs) then back to well now to the Netherlands what has that transition been like for you um it's been a a roller coaster I would say I've lived in the Netherlands now for eight years actually um I think yeah next week will be eight years um and this was me saying I'm only going to move for one year whilst my husband is on secondment and I'll come back and every year was just okay one more year and then one more year but um, yeah, it's, it's been a real, a real roller coaster. And I say that in the sense that, like I said, I was extremely naive coming here. Um, I thought with a close proximity to the UK, you can't possibly be that different culturally. So you go there thinking things are gonna be pretty similar. Um, no, it is a very, very different here. And even when I look back to what things were like eight years ago, it's also been completely different again. Um, so it, it's been a real challenge. <laughs> But I will say um, we enjoy it because we still live here, of course. There are great benefits and also negatives to living here. Um, I would say what I enjoy about living here is, um, well, one, my kids were born here, both of them. So for them, this is home. This is all they know. But with the twist that obviously they have British nationality, they, they can't be Dutch. You can't be Dutch until unless one of your parents are actually Dutch. So that's one thing that that's kind of stands out a little bit. So even if they were born here, they speak the language, this is all they know, you know, they're still technically reminded that this is not home, you know? Um, what else do I love about the Dutch? I love the way that they uh, center their family. 
Most Dutch people finish work at six and then they'll go home and all have family dinners together. Um, I love the way they have a real emphasis on being outdoors. They do a lot of outdoor sport. People are really, really fit. Um, you know, you might you might have read these um, these newspaper articles about the Dutch children are the happiest children in the world. And you can see that because they get unlimited, like quite a lot of freedom quite early on. Kids learn to cycle quite long, so um, quite early. <laughs> so they actually have the freedom to basically travel. They're quite independent. You know, some kids go to school for eight on their own cycling, or they go to sports by themselves. They come back by themselves. They're out playing by themselves. Um, so I can see why Dutch kids are the happiest, you know? Um, what else? The Dutch are extremely pragmatic and they're very, uh, not frugal, but maybe they're very, maybe good with money. You know, they don't, you know, they're, they're not kind of ostentatious. They tend to be, um, you know, watch their money quite well. They pretty much do where they can do everything themselves. They're gardening, they're this, they, they do all their DIY, that sort of thing. So that's something I really learned from, from them. On the flip side now, some of the challenges I've had with living here is that, yeah, like I said, I was not prepared for the culture shock. In hindsight, I should have participated in a cultural integration program to really understand like, you know, what it is that they do. And it's not really specific things, but like, for example, they rarely have hot lunch. Now, I'm from the Caribbean, people eat three warm meals a day. So, and that is something that my mom still did when we were growing up. And that's how I brought my kids up. So, you know, the thought of them going to like daycare and eating bread at six months old felt filled me with dread. Like I was this mom who, when I was working, you know, coming in with my Tupperware for my kids, like, you know, warm up this porridge for them, heat up this rice, please heat up this. I mean, now I've kind of relaxed a bit, but that was like a complete shock to me. And I remember the first time we, we moved here, we were invited to a friend's for lunch. So in my mind, it's Sunday lunch. I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is gonna be amazing. Um, <laughs> so I had a very light breakfast, you know, just some fruit, just, just ready to eat because I'm expecting like a spread. And then I turned up and this is why sometimes I really need to keep things in my head. And I was like, oh, have you guys just finished breakfast? And I'm like, no, 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 this is lunch. But I say that because I looked at the table and there's breakfast things on the table, bread, cheese, you know, cold cuts and like loads of different spreads. And this is lunch. And I, that also really shocked me. Um, but I think one of the things that really had a profound effect on me is the Dutch directness. You hear about this all the time. Um, they're very direct to the point of, if you're new to it, it comes across as really rude and really quite aggressive. So, you know, when I first came here, you know, I, I you know, do things in my British way. Excuse me, could you possibly, um, is it okay if, um, would you mind if um, perhaps we should consider, you know, all these conditional phrases, all these additional ways and people are just looking at you like, what do you want? <laughs> Tell me what you want. And for a long time, you know, I kind of lost my voice a little bit because I felt a little bit attacked. Um, but after a while, you know, I start dropping these conditional points, you know, can you, um, please don't, um, how about we do this instead? So I have grown a lot as a person just from having to deal with this, but it's really, really tough, to be honest. That is such an interesting point that you highlighted about um, the, the directness. Mm -hmm. um, I was watching online about um, people living in Iceland and how they do not like small talk at all. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, you don't like small talk. I don't know how I survive without the small talk. 
seriously you know so they done yeah. a little sketch where there was in an elevator and the guy was saying oh my gosh I say hello and good morning to them you know and then the lady was saying oh my gosh he's going to ask me you know how I am doing and what the weather is like type of thing yeah. and I was cracking up I thought it was so hilarious <laughs> But you know what it is? It's so true. It's like British people where we go around the world, in it, to say what yeah, we want yeah. type of thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's something I really had to work on. And I think I'm a little bit better at it. Um, but I still feel uncomfortable sometimes if I'm like, you know, please don't do that. <laughs> so what have you learned about yourself in the first year of living in the Netherlands? I've learned that I can be simultaneously fearless and fearful. Um, say that again, say that again. That, that <laughs> needs to be a quote somewhere. Say it again <laughs> so that everybody hears it. I've learned that I can be simultaneously fearless and fearful. And I say fearless because, well, attached to the naivety of moving to a country, you know, eight months pregnant that you've never visited um, and with no real plan, that's fearless to some extent, attached with, na with naivety. Um, you know, the thought that I could just raise my kids here on my own with no friends, no family, while my husband is working full time. And also at this time, he was traveling quite a lot. So I had quite a lot of periods on my own. Um, and then why I say I'm also, I was also fearful at the same time, you know, I was just afraid to kind of meet people and uh, afraid to really be vulnerable um, with new people, people that I don't know and asking for help. You know, um, being in, in London and, you know, without kids, I was just a very independent person. I mean, I lived together with my partner, but, you know, I, I kind of managed my own time. I had my own timetable. I had, I had a job. I had a career. I had a plan. And I had a life that existed outside of my relationship and outside of, like, my family. But I moved here and literally my, my whole world was just dictated by my family. I had no clear identity anymore. I forgot about who I was. Um, also, I think what it also made me realize is that I am just as susceptible to things like other people. I always thought I was strong, but actually I realized that some of that strength is kind of being forced upon you, where you're made to feel that you have to be strong, that you can't show weakness. And also, you know, having to deal with loads of petty microaggressions, not only just through work or just dealing with people on a regular basis, you kind of have to develop a bit of a thick skin. A thick skin being a woman and particularly working in a male dominated environment, a thick skin being a black woman in this environment. Um, also, I'm a first generation immigrant, so you have to deal with that. Dealing with just um, minor prejudices and dealing with racism. I think one of my first encounters of racism, I was waiting for the bus on my way back from, um, well, that's what it really registered with me. I was waiting for the bus in Tooting Beck. <laughs> you know, just the 249 bus, that's what it is. I, I was coming back, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was coming back from sixth form and I was standing waiting for my bus and this white van was driving up and they slowed down when they came towards me. Instantly my heart is beating, thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Either men are gonna catcall you or something's gonna happen. And do you know what happened? Someone threw a bottle of something in my face and it went all over my face and they were like, you know, you black, yeah. And that was, honestly, I was absolutely terrified when that happened because then you smell it and you know it's pee. So someone threw piss in my face at a bus stop. No, so what do I do? No, no, you look no. around, there are people around you, you know, other people, 
the only people who came to confront me were other people who looked like me, who also had brown skin. Can you imagine? So all of these things, you know, develop thick skin from you. Mm. So you kind of think, I don't need anybody because no one cares about you to some extent. And also, I suppose, being in the UK, like I said, we're first generation immigrants. We didn't have a lot of family here. So we pretty much had to start from scratch and we were kind of always on our own. So I've always felt like I've had to do things on my own. So what I learned is that I don't have to do things on my own yes, and yes, ask yes. for help. People are there to help you if, if, if you ask for it and if you need it. And sometimes, even if you don't ask for it, they're going to do it anyway. I have a really wonderful friend called Senya, um, who I met um, during a childbirth preparation course. And honestly, I hadn't even known her very long. And I was really, really struggling with, um, with my daughter after the birth. I had a very traumatic birth experience. Um, I had an emergency C-section. I was under general anesthetic, so I was unconscious for this emergency, well, what was considered an emergency C-section, although I wasn't communicated, this wasn't communicated to me. So I have, I'm unpacking all this trauma. Wow. I'm all by myself in this country. My husband is traveling a lot. My mom isn't here. My sister isn't there. My family isn't there. And I think once I literally had a, a breakdown yeah. because I couldn't find milk. <laughs> I couldn't find milk. Do you remember back in, like, I think, 2013, 2014? Um, and in the news, it was all about, you know, Nutrilon is, like, you're only allowed to buy one pack of Nutrilon because all the Chinese people are buying Nutrilon up in the stores. Crazy. And you couldn't find milk anywhere. So I literally had a breakdown. I was literally, I couldn't cope anymore. So I, I, I rang my friend, Senya, and I was like, Senya, I'm struggling. I haven't got any milk. I haven't got any milk. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? The poor thing. You know, she sends her husband to go <laughs> buy milk. Uh, for me and my daughter and like I think it was like 9 p.m or something and then he, he came back with it so yeah this is an example of how I've learned to be vulnerable open yourself up to people and allow them to help you in your deepest darkest times of need and you know what is I'm really glad that you shared that because we always I mean for myself you know people may feel that I've got a thick exterior but so soft and gooey in the middle yeah you know? and there's one thing that I'm learning to do do you know what I mean I'm learning to do gooey 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 I'm yeah. learning to do is to ask people for help mm-hmm. and if they can wonderful but what I have found is that the more I ask for help the more it just releases the stress and the anxiety for me type of thing and if I can't do something I'm gonna ask the expert you know can you help please type of thing instead of me trying to wrap my brain and go on YouTube to find out about this and about that when I know that Sharnette can do it or Jeanette can do it or Marsha can type of thing you know I just reach out to the people who know but um it takes some time it takes some time it really does but it's the best thing ever because people want to help don't they they want to help you miss the food which food do you miss Tesco's going to Tesco's and Sainsbury's I miss MS. I'm not MS. Ah. Because we worked quite quite a lot, you know, we used to always just get, you know, the MS um like steak, the fruit, the fries, you know, just pick it up, like easy food that you can cook pretty quickly. I really miss that. And the quality of the food and the quality of the meat, that's what I really miss. It's so different here. I haven't actually eaten lamb chops in a long time because I'm so disappointed with the quality of the lamb here. So <laughs> if I go back to the UK, the first there's a couple of things I look for is lamb saltfish patties um some saturday soup i I still have fond memories there's that i can't remember his name but there's a man with his van in uh in brixton in the market 
um, who's there on Saturdays. And honestly, that man makes the best soup. I remember coming to the UK maybe four years ago and literally people were like, oh, can we meet for lunch? I was like, no, no, sorry, I'm busy. Just so I can go <laughs> and eat soup in the middle of the street. <laughs> That is the best thing. I'm telling you, Saturday soup all day, you know. But it's good. It's good. So is there like an expat community that you're part of? I wouldn't no. say that I am. No, I'm not a natural extrovert for one. Okay. And also, like I said, I was I was really struggling um, after my daughter was born. I think I, I really did have like postpartum depression, which I didn't recognize um and I, I look back and I can clearly see it now you know in the way that I was so controlling of, of everything well I couldn't control anything else that was happening around me but the only thing I could control was me and my child and our schedule I mean it was like you know if something was off by five minutes I would have like a little mental breakdown you know ah, it's 12 by five and she's not eaten that kind of stuff you know and like writing every single thing that happened she sneezed at 12.01 she 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 rolled over at 305 you know just really random stuff so I really couldn't think about the fact that I was really struggling and all these fears external so I was really just keeping it here keeping it in a controlled in a controlled um kind of area and system and it didn't help also that the first apartment we lived in was mice ridden I mean honestly oh, if I could <laughs> that's I, the worst thing ever that. mice and cockroach I can't no no yeah, thank you Listen, I think we stayed there for nine months. That's how bad it was. But again, you know, I developed really, really strange behaviors. Like um, I would switch on the lights, which if I go into the kitchen like six times to like, or tap the door also three times and then knock on the, like, stamp my feet. You know, so there is one, please go away. I don't want to see you. Please, I beg. I just want to make lunch, that kind of stuff. So I was basically living for a very long time. I think at least three years in a high performing anxious state. Wow. I, I was hyper alert. My nerves were just always just there. And I could see that in the way I held my body. You know, my body would always be contracting. I used to grind my teeth. Mm. My, my breathing was very shallow. I mean, the amount of breaths I would take a minute was actually astounding. Um, and yeah, at one point I had to kind of unpack all of this and I had um, therapy, thank goodness. Awesome. I did that. Um, so I was able to emotionally release all this stress, yeah. all this trauma. And then from the minute I released that, then my body started to release and relax. You know, I didn't get those aches and pains in my neck anymore. My teeth didn't hurt and everything. So, yeah, it's sounding like I've had a very traumatic <laughs> No, but it's there's hills and valleys, isn't it? At the end of the day, up and down, you know, that's the journey of life. But what I'm taking from it is that you were able to, you know, get the help that you need. You had the therapy mm. and then look at you now, you're smiling, you know, you're, you're, you're doing all the things that you love. So, and if I try and try that moment type of thing, you know? Yeah. And if I tie it to moving to a new country, I would say it takes longer than you'd imagine to really settle into a country. You might think it will take three to six months, but it's more like two to three years like to really understand the culture, to really bed in, to make it like a real, uh, to build a real community and make a real circle of friends. And it doesn't help if you keep moving around. And it's funny when I was thinking about this interview and I was thinking about my, my experience when I moved here, we moved four times in one year. So after that experience with the mice, we moved again, like almost every month. Um, we were staying in temporary um, accommodation and it really drew like parallels with me to my experience when I moved to the UK with my mum, which, do you know what, I actually never noticed 
So it's funny like that pattern just sort of almost repeats itself in a way, but then you have to break that cycle. And then I think that's why it was key for me to get like proper help. So just someone who is impartial, non-judgmental, who could really see the bigger picture and help me to connect the dots. And only through that learning and that internalizing was I then able to really see things clearly for what they are. So instead of me kind of looking outwards and thinking, oh, all these things, all these things. No, I just need to look inwards and really try to form my own um, reality based on my perception, but obviously use external um, influences as like a check and balance on that perception and that reality. Um, so yeah, so I would highly recommend um, if people haven't, I still feel like they're struggling, really trying to unlearn and unpack um, who they are to just seek the help. There's no shame in it. Um, and you can really better yourself for it. Yeah. That is just so awesome. It's quite a testimony, isn't it? You know, yeah. <laughs> it isn't like a testimony, you know, I was here but I got through and now I'm here and I can share my story, you know, and as on, when is it on Monday, Meghan Markle and Harry, Prince Harry shared their story of their experience and through you sharing your experience and your story, it can help healing, you know, it can help dialogue and communication and breakthroughs as well. You're not alone. You're not alone. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I always say to people, you know, your story is your power because we all have a story to tell. Some of us are not ready to share our story or not ready to tell, but you'll find when you share your story, you are seen and heard. And there are other people who will feel seen and heard because they might think that they're alone and they might think that they're the only person struggling with this. But if they see someone who is brave enough, who is courageous enough to share their truth and share their journey, they might be able to take something from that. And that's something that I, I always say to my mentees and my coaches, you know, don't be afraid to share your story because some of my um, coaches, for example, I will say, you know, what have been your highlights? Tell me about yourself. What do you do? And they miss out so much information. They give me their CV, their business CV journey. And I'm thinking, I'm sure you're more, you must be more interested in this. Come on. I can see a saxophone in the back. Okay. I can see there's some drawings over there. Please tell me about this. You know, what do you do? And then you find out, you know, they've got a side business reselling shoes or they manage this little, um, little gig business or they've got an online wig business or they've got something. And I'm like, all of this literally creates a more rounded picture of an individual. Don't be embarrassed because you think it's not high profile enough or you think it's not what they want to hear. Use all of your experiences to really tell the person who you are because you're going for an interview. They don't, I mean, they do care that you have the skills or that you have the background, but almost everyone has the same grades. Almost everyone has been to university. What is your differentiating factor? This is what I always say to everybody. What makes you you and what makes you special? And then how can you add value with you to either the organization you're going for or whatever business that you're going to run? I mean, tell us about your business and yeah. how you set it up. Well, um, well, I, I've been coaching for a few years, actually. Um, I was working with um, Rare Recruitment uh, Limited um, with their finance and investment banking division, really coaching um, people to prepare them, well, graduates, preparing them for life working in, you know, a top investment banking company. So I would help them with um, their narrative. So, you know, 
figuring out their story and how we present their story and their accomplishments, particularly when they're doing their competency interviews. And then I would do um, mock interviews, case study interviews, and do like presentations, you know, introduction to MA, introduction to finance, that sort of stuff. So I just really loved it. And I really connected with, with, with these kids. And I also took a no-nonsense, but a holistic approach to their kind of job, um, looking for a job, their job seeking. And I think that's what really, really resonated with these kids. I wasn't just like, oh, tick pock exercise, yeah, okay, mock it to be done. I really took the time to really get to know who they are, who their skills are, and meet them where they are. Because like I said, they've all got the same grades, but what makes them stand out is their unique story. So it's really kind of deep working with these kids and helping them to feel proud about themselves, feel proud of where they're from. Like I remember one guy really stood out for me, you know, he, he was from uh, Bosnia, I think, and his parents moved to the UK, like from the war, and he never mentioned it, not once in an interview. He, he said something to me and my ear peaked and I was like, oh, wait, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Let's go back a little bit. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. And, you know, afterwards, he said that's the first time he'd ever really spoken about that with someone and that he felt proud about it. And he could really flip it and really see, like, what, what he's gained from that. And I just felt really, really great just being able to empower people to own their own stories and own their journeys to really take control. So um, when I lost my job in um, July, although I was told I was, I, that I wasn't going to renew my contract in May last year, I welcomed it. I was actually super happy. <laughs> they were shocked. I mean, they were like, do you have anything to add? Nope. <laughs> I was practically almost smiling whilst also crying because I'm thinking, you know, you still have that feeling of rejection, even though I knew that this was not the place for me. But um, then I thought, what am I going to do? But again, I went, took some step back. I did some deep work, you know, did some shadow work, really thought about, and then just came out of it thinking, life is short. You know, I also lost my uncle to COVID. And obviously this is all happening during lockdown. You kind of see, you know, you're hearing hundreds of thousands of people are dying daily. This is fundamentally changing everyone in the world. And this also changed me. So I was thinking, okay, what is going to bring me joy? What am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? Where is, where is the need in this world? And for me, it's all about, you know, how can I use my, my lived experiences, um, my professional qualifications and everything else to help people also unbreak and kind of become who they already are. Because I think we all have it in us already. We just need to strip away the perceptions of other people, the observations, the judgments and everything else and go back to what we're good at, which is just being ourselves. I always had an issue and people most probably never knew this about people pleasing. You know, mm. I thought I felt that I needed to be everything for everybody and nothing for myself type of thing, you know, yes. but, <laughs> you know, I went on the mentoring program um, and we call it the no frills mentoring program. And there was about five ladies and it was headed up by a lady called Jacqueline Pierre. And yeah. through that mentoring program, I'm telling you, I was able really to define my own personal mission statement and the vision that I want for my life, you know? And then from that, you know, I, you know, set up ICANN and, you know, the history, it continues on type of thing, but it took a lot, as you said, shadow work. It took mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, going back to past issues and, you know, bringing them back to the fore and just accepting and then just moving on and forgiving people too type of thing. So I think I've done my own little therapy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> during that time you know what I mean I think I'm definitely my own little therapy and what I want you to say is like on your website it says your story is your power tell mm -hmm. us more about that 
And I think I'm, I've alluded to it a little bit before, but it's really what I'm saying that everyone has a story to tell and everyone's journey and all the kind of challenges, the highs, the lows, the wins, the losses, those have really all contributed to forming who you are today. And um, like I said, when you share your story, particularly, for example, in an interview, you know, the first question is usually tell me about yourself or, you know, who are you? And like I say, most people always give the CV kind of summary and roundup and they miss out so much about who makes them them. And they really should use that to give a holistic view of who they are as a person. You know, like think about what contributions you can bring to an organization that is going to make them thrive, make them think differently, make them challenge themselves. Um, the same when you look at people setting up businesses, for example. People buy the who and the why as much as the what. So it's not just about the product. They want to know who is behind that product. So like I'm sharing my story about why, I'm, why um, I started this company in the same way that if people resonate with that, then you know, they're really going to look to you to try to help them, to help them through that process. Um, I'm, a fond, I'm, I'm a really fond believer in journaling, which I've adopted um, throughout to kind of help me you know, process my thoughts, process my intentions, both negative and positive. And like I was saying, you know, was, I was really struggling for a long period of time, um, you know, just with that whole, like, kids, this new country, all of it. And um, at one point, I was really focusing on my kids because it was really quite challenging. And then um, I decided to kind of use that, use those experiences, use those stories to basically write children's stories. <laughs> So um, I think it was back in 2017, in like a, a moment, a whirlwind of creativity, I wrote uh, like four and a half books or five books, basically short stories for children, aged kind of like five plus. Um, and I did nothing with them. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Um, so I kind of just did them, did them, and I, put, I packed them there. I did think about self-publishing. I thought about putting myself out there and I thought, no. Okay, no, not yet. I'm too busy. We were getting married at that time. We just bought a house. We were renovating the house. I was having surgery on my on my foot. So I just thought oh, I have too much, too much on my plate right now to deal with. And um, at the end of last year, obviously the confidence I started this this business. I also thought, oh my God, I've got these books here. I think <laughs> I might do something with this. I now have the you know the bandwidth. I can now see a little bit more clearer. I'm thinking, hey. Um, let me share my story. Let me share my experiences with the world um, in terms of how, you know, my interactions with my kids. There's some sort of challenges and issues that we've had to go um, through with my kids living here, but just general day to day life. And um, I am now taking steps and I'm going to publish them, which is my love story to my daughter, basically. Um, it's called Ada's Wash Day. And it, it's quite poignant now when you think about all the discussions about, you know, women, black women, girls, identity. And a lot of our cultural and kind of identity as black women is tied to our hair. Yeah. You know, you think about all the historical and cultural references and the significance of that hair. And then more so, you know, my, my daughter's also had some challenging moments. She's only seven, but you know, she has questions like, um, why does your hair look like a boy? Or your hair looks like a sheep? Or, um, you know, they'll like pull her hair and be like, oh, it feels like a cloud, you know, you know, she had really questions about, you know, why is my hair like this? Why is my hair not like that? I want straight hair because she also has, you know, type 4C hair, mm -hmm. which is characterized by, you know, very kinky, kinky type curls. You know, it's very delicate, can also be quite fine. 
um, it tangles really easily. And you know, it's, it's short and compact. And then obviously I'm completely different. I have naturally very curly hair and I tend to wear my hair straight very often. So I get a lot of, you know, questions from her, you know, why can't I straighten my hair? Your hair is straight, you wear your hair straight. So, you know, this book really touches upon those kind of issues about self-acceptance, pride and identity. But then also it's a very sweet kind of gentle story about the relationship between mum and daughter. Because, you know, when I look at my daughter and she looks at herself, for example, she sees herself, she sees me, her grandmother, my great grandmother, all these women that came behind her. You know, I think I read a story once that said, when, in, when your grandmother is in her mother's womb, she already has the egg that is going to form her daughter or her child. So when you think about that and then the link and the power contained within the feminine like arc, that feminine circle, it's really deep. Um, <laughs> so when you look at it from that perspective, so for me, the book is all about self-acceptance, pride, but then just thinking about that historical narrative that women, you know, we carry, we, we, we create. Um, that's, that, that's what me, really made me want to write this book and just kind of talking about it and showing it through a very simple ritual, you know, this bond between her mother and daughter of wash day, which is so significant for black people because it is a wash day, like that takes hours, you know? So that's something that my daughter and I have, that's something we share. And I think that's something that a lot of people will really resonate with and, and see and feel and yeah, it's cute. <laughs> so I'm really excited to share it with the world. <laughs> I can't wait for that to come out because you know I'll be buying several copies, isn't it? Because I've got a couple God um, goddaughters, you know, who I definitely can bless a book with, you know. Yeah, and, oh, also, you. and also number one bestseller, might I say that too, and yeah. when you was talking about Ada's wash day, I was saying to myself, it took me back. Yeah. So when me and my mum, when my mum used to help me wash my hair, because I think I've got 4C hair, but sometimes I don't really understand the different 4C, A, B and whatever. But yeah. I, I have that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true in terms of that bonding time, you know. My mum was showing me and teaching me how to wash my hair and make sure yeah. you wash it how many times, make sure, you know, the amount of water to take the suds out and everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was such a fun time. Then afterwards, the platin and the sulfur eight. My mum used to love sulfur eight, you know, yeah. and the braids and, you know, hot combing. Then when I got to about, I had my hair natural until I was about maybe 15. Then I begged yeah. my mum, mum. I want my hair relaxed. <laughs> I didn't want it relaxed straight. I want it wave, wave nouveau. Do you remember wave nouveau? Yes. And, you know, yeah. but it wasn't the wet curly term. It was, it was more of a wavy type yes, yes. look, isn't it? But dry. So I had that for about maybe, um, maybe up to 10 years and then maybe 20 odd onwards. I've been natural ever since. Mm. But I tell you what, the wash days with mama, my <laughs> goodness, we've all got a story for that. If somebody is thinking about, you know, pursuing a career as a coach, um, what advice would you give them? Well, I think firstly, do your research. There are many different um, areas of coaching that you can um, get into. Health, lifestyle, um, leadership, career coaching, business coaching. You know, there, there are lots of different forms. So think about, again, where your skill sets lie, where your strengths lie. And then think about what is it you're good at? What is it you enjoy? What are you passionate about? And then um, you can go on the um, 
uh, International Coaching Federation website, and they, they really have a lot of resources. So you can kind of narrow down your focus, find out a bit more about what each one entails and what's required. Awesome, awesome. So we're going to wrap up now. And so the wrapping up question is, da, 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 da. <laughs> finish the sentence. Be you because... I will use this famous quote, which is actually from Oscar Wilde, be you because everyone else is already taken. And that's really, really quite poignant because, you know, how many billions of people are there in the world? And we're all completely different, all completely unique. And every single one of us has a specific talent or a specific skill or a specific thing that makes them them. You know, that really makes them stand out. So don't be afraid of that and really channel that when you're thinking about who you want to be, what, what area of work you want to be and what type of business you, you, you want to pursue. Um, but also, I think when we think about being you or becoming you, we tend to think that we need to grow into a different type of person. I kind of think of it the reverse. Actually, I think we need to unlearn, we need to step down into the person that we already are. And I think a lot of who we are is formed, like I said, by, by perceptions about how we think people view us, how we think we, 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 we show up in this world, how, how and where we think we stand in relation to other people. But I think fundamentally, when we look inside, so when we go into our interior, we think about what are our needs, what are our wants, what are our desires, we already know the question. We just have to get a bit of peace, get a bit of silence and really tune into that. So tune into you which is you, and then tune out all this other noise and all this other mess. And if we can tune that out and really focus on us, listen to our inner voice, our inner person, which is our essence, you know, then I think you can really be you and really show up and show out in this world in whichever way that you decide, you know, I'm not talking about being a celebrity or being famous, whatever. I mean, you know, show up with the level of impact and show up and create the level of impact that you want in the way that you want it and now particularly with social media with the internet with people working from home you have all the you have all the necessary kind of things to really allow you to thrive without kind of you know having to be part of a big company or whatever like I remember listening to um, a podcast um, with Simon Sinek, and I think it was um, Dr. Brennan Brown, and he referenced um, Steve Jobs, you know, like when Steve Jobs um, develop, was developing the operating model for, for the Apple computers, he was actually already working on something else. But then he saw this at a trade fair and he thought, this is the future. This is what I'm going to focus on. And guess what? Even after spending millions on focusing on this other thing, he decided right there and then that he was going to follow this path. And his reasoning, he had a strong mission, a strong vision for what he wanted. His thing was he wants to develop this to be able to bring sort of computers to every single household. Why? Because then it will give you that freedom you know, an individual can work for themselves, take control of themselves and take charge of their lives. And I think even more so now, you know, all these things are accessible for you and you can do so much. You are so powerful beyond what you can even imagine. So, you know, don't be held back by your limiting beliefs. Believe in yourself. Really create a strong vision for yourself. So think about the end, where you want to end up. And then, then go back to the beginning and think, okay, what are the steps I need to do to get to where I want to be? 
and ultimately just you know have fun like life should be fun it's not about just making money and, and doing whatever have fun experience things and try new things and yeah just do you be you do you <laughs> I love that be you do you you are awesome man seriously I really, I've enjoyed my time speaking with you and I'm sure that you know our listeners our listeners you know not just mine but our listeners would have been able to take away some real inspiration some encouragement and comfort also for them to think they're not alone you yes. know they are not alone and for them to be them and to do them you know yeah Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Sophia. I've really oh, enjoyed you're welcome. Welcome. You are welcome. You are welcome. <laughs> you are no, really, welcome. it's been really fun. I had a really, really fun time. And yeah, no, I, I really enjoy. I think um I got more out of it than you even know. Um oh. I think you're underselling yourself in in that. You know, just by you listening to me and giving me this platform and allowing me to share my story and my journey, you know, I feel empowered as well. So I really appreciate it. Well, we empower each other, isn't it? Because remember, one <laughs> hand can't <laughs> clap. <laughs> one hand can't clap. We empower each other. But thank you so much for joining me on Employability Matters podcast. everyone this is your host Sophia Lewis and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Employability Matters a careers and job related podcast where we dive into all topics associated with the world of work thank you for subscribing I very much appreciate your support and remember to share with your family and friends it would be appreciated if you could leave a great review on our YouTube channel, Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I will be back next week for another great episode. So until then, remember, employability matters. <music>